Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. While most episodes of this show focus on the more distant past, this podcast looks at an event in living memory, the Brighton bombing. In 1984, the Provisional IRA came within seconds of killing the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. The bombing became one of the most high-profile incidents in the Troubles and has led to decades of speculation about what might have happened had the attempt been successful. This year, Rory Carl, an author and the Ireland correspondent for the Guardian newspaper, published what is a gripping account of the bombing and then the extraordinary manhunt that followed. Now last week I got to sit down with Rory for what was a riveting interview. As you're about to hear, there are so many angles to this story, from the plan itself right through to the police investigation, which at times almost sound fictional. As you listen to this, I think you're also going to find how striking it is about what's changed over the last four decades. The bombing only took place just under 40 years ago, but everything from the technology available to the police to wider world politics have been transformed. I just found that aspect of our conversation alone surprising. Now, I have links to Rory's book in the show notes below. As I said, it's a really great read. I'd strongly recommend checking it out. Now, speaking of books, the countdown is on to the release of my own book, Alita Legacy, A History of Ireland and 18 Murders. The book is coming out on September the 14th, but you can pre-order your copy today. If you pre-order at Eason's and use the coupon code FD10, you get 10% off. Pre-orders also get shipped in the days before the book is released. So if you live in Ireland, you'll have the book the day it hits the shelves. And if you live overseas, it'll be on its way to you. So pre-order today and use that coupon code FD10 to get your 10% discount. Next week, I'm starting a series based on material that didn't make the final edit of A Lethal Legacy for space reasons. Now, the first of these podcasts looks at the story of a remarkable survivor of the Great Hunger. Catherine Mulhern and her family story is at times unbelievable, and I regretted not being able to include it in the book, so I'm delighted to be able to share it with you in a podcast. That's coming out next week. Now to today's episode. Sound is by Kate Dunley. In terms of understanding the Brighton bombing and the IRA's attempt to kill Margaret Thatcher, the wider context is key. While the bomb targeted the Conservative Party conference in 1984, the wider political situation both in Britain and Northern Ireland is crucial in terms of understanding the aims behind the plan, but also why it very nearly succeeded. So Rory began by explaining the early 1980s and what was happening in both Britain and Ireland. By 1984, I mean, the Troubles were in their 15th year and had reached a stalemate. I mean, it was clear that the IRA were not going to be able to push the Brits into the sea as they, as they would have w- wanted to do. 
and but also that the British military was and RUC the police were struggling to to contain the IRA so there was this kind of bloody stalemates and I mean by then it meant that for the British the British government and Thatcher had just won a second term they were able to in a sense to park Northern Ireland I mean it wasn't top of the the agenda and on her way down to the the Conservative Party conference I mean Thatcher was near her her zenith in some ways because she had won the Falklands War. She had faced down the IRA hunger strikes of 1981. At least it had it seemed as a, as a victory for the British government in that 10 hunger strikers starved themselves to death in the Mace prison in Belfast. And yet they appeared to have not have won the political status that, that they had sought. So this kind of burnished the, the image of Margaret Thatcher as the, the Iron Lady. And then she'd won this, this second term. So she was doing really well. That said, I mean, the, the big battle that Thatcher was facing in going into that Tory party conference was, in fact, the miners' strike. The government was involved in a very tough battle with the miners. And so the main security concern about the conference was that busloads of striking miners from Wales and Northern England might turn up and try to storm the, the, the conference hall. So that was why the police, you know, had there's a very big police presence there, unusually so in Brighton on the in English Channel uh, for the conference. But they were they were expecting miners. They were not expecting the IRA. And unknown to the British intelligence agencies, the IRA had been secretly, quietly plotting a revenge attack on Thatcher. Revenge because of the hunger strikes, and they felt that. I mean, the, the death of Bobby Sands and nine other Republican prisoners, they blamed that on Thatcher's inflexibility, and they felt that they, they wanted payback for that. And in addition to that, the, the goal was, in a sense, to try to scramble the this stalemate, this deadlock in the Troubles. They thought maybe some dramatic act might somehow change the calculus. And so that was a motivation. And so they had spent the IRA, their, specifically its England department, had spent invested several years in slowly, quietly, methodically scouting out the venues and attack lines and where and how could they go after Thatcher. And the, the chosen time and place was this Conservative Party conference in October in 1984. Rory alluded to the fact that the conflict in Northern Ireland was not a priority for the Conservative Party politicians gathering in Brighton. Listening to this, I got the impression that they, and indeed the security forces in Britain, had underestimated the provisional IRA at the time. And I asked Rory if this was the case. Yes, is a short answer, because the IRA had never attempted anything on this scale before. I mean, they had assassinated Mountbatten off the coast of Sligo in 1979, along with members of his family and, and a local boy from Fermanagh. But... He, he he's a prestigious target, but he has also been an exceptionally soft target. Going after a sitting prime minister was completely different. The IRA had never really gone after seriously guarded targets before because basically it was so hard. And also it meant operating in England. In that sense, from the IRA point of view, this operating behind enemy lines where your, your operators don't have the hinterland of Republican hardland support, be it, say, in West Belfast or East Tyrone or Derry. You don't have this kind of network of safe houses and supply lines. And instead, you're kind of a fish out of water. You're in England. And so that makes everything much more difficult in terms of having to, to elude intelligence agencies, the surveillance, uh, in terms of just not, you know, not sticking out like a sore thumb. And so that's why the British security forces hadn't anticipated this. And in hindsight, of course, one would say, well, they should have, because, I mean, the IRA's not-so-secret weapon was the, not the explosives, because, of course, they're, they're, they become increasingly sophisticated in terms of circuit boards and explosives and learning the art and craft and the murderous art and craft of, of explosives. But it was the timers that the IRA had were cannibalizing VCR recorders to be able to time basically elaborate time bombs and they could plan that those for weeks possibly even months in advance and the british army and police had known about this since the, the late 1970s 
And so, and then, and in fact, in an army report that even anticipated this, said, look, the IRA may could use these timers to plant a bomb in advance of some VIP visit somewhere. And yet, there was a failure of imagination. I don't think that the British intelligence and security services didn't fully grasp the implications of this, because on this week in, in October week in on the Brighton seafront, the I mean, Margaret Thatcher had always stayed in the same hotel in the Grand Hotel. And the police didn't even do a, a proper search of it before she arrived. They they did a kind of a, almost like a cursory search of the of the first floor where she was going to be staying, but they didn't search the whole hotel. There was no kind of sterile zone. And it was kind of operating on a certain degree of kind of complacency because they just didn't conceive that the IRA, you know, have had the the wit or the audacity, frankly, to to be able to to plant a bomb, which they did. So far, we've covered the wider context in Britain. Before we look at the actual bombing itself, I asked Rory to provide some background to Patrick McGee, the IRA volunteer later convicted of planting the bomb. Through his life, you get a better sense of the IRA motivations behind their attempt to kill Thatcher. Well, on one level, Patrick McGee was, you know, could be described as a kind of central casting IRA volunteer. He was from West and North Belfast. He grew up in the kind of the markets area, working class, Catholic background, family with kind of nationalist leanings. And except what was unusual about him was that the family, when he was a boy, they moved to England into Norwich, where for the, so the father could get work, and so he Patrick grew up there, and he was never especially happy um, there. He was a troubled teenager. He ran with the wrong crowd. He he was kind of lost. You know, he was physically quite small, even frail, and he you know there he was as Paddy, and he you know he got into trouble. He was with a gang. I mean, and they were would break into shops. At the age of 15, he was caught, arrested, and somewhat fatefully fingerprinted. And he was sent to a kind of a, a type of reform school. And, and so he was kind of drifting. I mean, he was sort of like a bohemian spirit as well. He was, he was good at art. And at one point, he envisaged doing a career, having a career as an artist. But then the troubles erupted in 1969, 1970. And he'd always missed Belfast because those extended family were there, cousins. That's what, that's what he'd known as had been his kind of comfort blanket. So he went back in the early 70s just to see what was going on. And there he was awed by the defiance of I, the IRA. I mean, this was the kind of the embryonic IRA taking on the might of the British army on the streets of Belfast. And he he signed up and you know, it took some convincing on his part because he had this English accent and, you know, so the local IRA are a bit suspicious of him, but he persuaded to let, you know, to let him join. And quite quickly, he became what the IRA would term an engineering officer, which is a bomb maker, which is probably the single most dangerous thing you could have done at that time, because so many IRA bomb makers blew themselves up. I mean, they're still learning their, their trade. And McGee, whoever was skilled enough, possibly lucky enough that he survived this, did not blow himself up, was very involved in a lot of activities in West Belfast, in, in Belfast in the in the early 70s, and was then interned along with so many other IRA men in, in the early 70s. And it was while he was in Longkesh, which would become the Mays prison, he fell under, I don't say the spell of Jerry Adams, but he became, Jerry Adams was interned at the same time. And McGee was very impressed with Adams' analysis of the situation, of the fact of the need for a long war, the fact that there was going to be no short-term victory, and that if you're a true Republican, you had to kind of see ahead to the fact that this could be a generational conflict. So upon being released, McGee thought, well, you know, a bomb in England, you know, it was worth more than 10 or 100 bombs in Belfast in terms of the impact on, on the British state and British public opinion. And so that would be where he thought he could be of most value, especially because he had, I guess what in IRA terms would be almost like a superpower, which was an English accent. He could turn it, by then he'd lost it, it, but he could turn it back on if he needed to. And this, when you're operating in England, was extremely valuable because you can imagine in the mid 70s, you know, you're turning up in London or anywhere in England with a West Belfast accent I mean, that would just straight away, you know, um, set off alarm bells 
for, for people in England. Whereas if you could put on an English accent, you could so much more easily blend in and, and avoid suspicion. So he volunteered for the what's known as the England Department. This was the, the IRA units, kind of the holy of holies, that was tasked with exporting the war, as they would put it, across the sea. And that meant sending over small teams of mainly bomb, make, bomb makers, bomb planters, scouts, reconnaissance teams over to England, mainly London, and to scout out targets and to plant bombs and to do all that they could to, to make an impact. So he did that through the 1970s. But by towards the late 70s, he, for various reasons, was burned out. He was drinking too much. He had a young child and he was married, but his private life was suffering. And I mean, so he would, you know, because these missions to England, this sort of like the IRA version of being a commando. You know, you're going behind enemy lines. It's deep cover. You lose contact with people back in Belfast because, you know, people are being watched. The security forces are eavesdropping on telephones. So in many, in some ways, you're, you're very cut off. And that can wreak quite a psychological toll on, on, on you when, when you're over in England. And so, you know, McGee then found himself just drained, exhausted. Uh, his nerves were frayed. And so he tried to make a new life for himself. He decided just to, I think this was 1979 to 1980, to leave the IRA. And he went to the Netherlands, planning a new life there. Long story short, the British caught up with him. The, the Dutch police arrested McGee at the behest of the British. And the British tried and failed to extradite him. Now, this failed attempt to extradite Patrick McGee from Holland would ironically lead him back to Ireland, where he ended up rejoining the IRA. He felt his, his chance of a new life in the Netherlands was, was over. So he just drifted back to Dublin. And he was working in the Dublin office of what was Sinn Féin and their newspaper on Fublucht during the hunger strikes. And this rekindled his, his passion for the cause because, you know, like so many other people of, you know, at that time, I mean, seeing these men, Bobby Sands and, and nine others, one after another, starve themselves to death, I mean, had a profound impact on so many people. So he signed up again to, to rejoin the England department and to take the war to England. And so fast forwarding to 1984, uh, he was one of their, their best operators. You know, he was versatile. He, could, um, he knew how to assemble a bomb. He knew how to plant it. He knew how to blend into, the, into, into England. And so he was the, the one who was selected to be the, the last link in the chain to, to actually plant the bomb in the Grand Hotel. Next, we moved on to the bombing itself. The IRA planned to kill Margaret Thatcher at the Conservative Party conference, which was being held in the English seaside resort of Brighton. Rory first explains what precisely the Conservative Party conference was. Yes, these are kind of annual party jamborees. You know, the Conservatives have one, and as does Labour and the and the Liberal Democrats, and they, it's basically like a sort of half mix of a party. It's a four-day event usually at a seaside resort. The party faithful, you know, ordinary members turn up at this, I'm talking about the 1980s, I mean, this, in this more innocent pre-Brighton bomb era, where the party faithful could rub shoulders with the cabinet ministers, even the prime minister herself, over four days. And there'd be speeches, there'd be a big conference where there'll be a big conference centre, and there'd be speech after speech after speech on the platform, speaking to the converted, if you like, about, you know, the great things, in this case, that the government is doing, their plans for the future. And so for Thatcher, I mean, this was an annual event and a great platform to, you know, to project her, her principles, her cause, her, you know, her, her policy priorities. And this particular year in 1984, it was what were in, in the crosshairs for, for Margaret Thatcher was the, the miners um, whom she considered sort of kind of quasi-Marxist traders and the Labour Party led by Neil Kinnock which he felt that they were somehow kind of enabling this, I'm not sure she used the word treasonous, but certainly, you know, this illegitimate challenge to the state. So she, that, that was very much her focus. And she was going to, wanted to rally her party, you know, into this almost an existential fight in a way, because the, that, that the stakes were so high for the government against the miners and the far left British political movements. 
And so that was what, what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, she was inching towards what would become known as the Anglo-Irish Agreement with the Irish government led by Garrett Fitzgerald. And that was still, you know, very embryonic. It was just talk between civil servants, the outlines of what, of what that agreement were beginning to take shape. But this was completely not really on the agenda of the party conference. And so the IRA, Northern Ireland, the troubles, that was far away, forgotten. Don't really want to talk about it. It wasn't on the agenda. So let's have a party, you know, and let's show that, you know, this government in its second term in office still has a lot of petrol left in the tank to to deliver on Thatcherism. Because at this point, Thatcher's name had, had lent itself to the ideology, which we now know as Thatcherism. The plan itself was audacious, to say the least. Rory now explains what precisely the IRA planned to do in Brighton. They knew they couldn't plant a huge bomb near the hotel that Margaret Thatcher would stay in, so instead they adopted a different strategy. The IRA felt that they they weren't using Semtex at this point, so it was more kind of traditional type of explosives, which were kind of somewhat less powerful than say than, than Semtex. They were not they were not going to be able to plant a huge, massive you know, 500 pound or 1,000 pound bomb in the hotel uh, without being discovered. So they, they kind of rationed themselves to think, okay, we're going to plant a smallish bomb, probably around 30 pounds in, in weight. And we're going to try and place it in a part of the hotel, which A, where it will not be discovered, at least reduce the chances of discovery, and B, where it will do maximum damage and give us a chance of killing Thatcher. And that is the title of the of the British edition of my book is is killing Thatcher, and you know to do that first they had scouts spying in a sense on the British on the the Tory Party conference two years earlier, 1982. They had people went to the Tory Party conference. were not planning to attack it. They were just watching, just seeing you know where does where does Thatcher stay? Where, what what hotel does she stay in? Which floor? Which suite is she in? What are the police doing? How many police are here? Are they in a hotel? Are they, you know, what is the security protocols and so on? Uh, again, the following year, 1983, there had the Tory party conference was held in Blackpool. And again, IRA spies were there. So at least, at least one, there's half a chapter in the book explaining, you know, what this person who checked into the, the, the hotel in advance of the, of the, of the, of the, of the conservatives and so they're basically doing, the IRA were doing their homework. And then they decided, okay, their best chance was going to be in Brighton in 1984. And they knew that they would have just one shot at this because, you know, whether succeeded or failed, I mean, after the, the attack, you I mean, the British would, of course, overhaul their security protocols and it, they would never have the same chance again. So they thought we have to try and, you know, do everything to get it right. They sent over a construction kind of engineer, building surveyor, specialist to the Grand Hotel months before Thatcher arrived to study it. And this, the Grand Hotel is about eight stories high, Victorian era architecture, big white kind of wedding cake, big chimneys on top and right on the seafront. And so this engineer reported back uh, to the IRA on, you know, his thoughts on the, you know, the, the building itself. And so they decided, okay, they picked a zone in the hotel where they thought the bomb would was unlikely to be discovered by the police and where it could do maximum damage and maybe kill Thatcher. And the last link in the chain of was Patrick McGee because his job was to, to check into the hotel, which he did three weeks. He did in September 1984. This was three weeks before the Tory party conference. So it's the tail end of summer. And it was, you know, Brighton was a kind of as kind of a, a fun town to be in and he just turns up smartly dressed and checks in to the into the, the hotel as a regular guest he used the name Roy Walsh and he did not arouse suspicion you know he didn't do anything you know that to, to make that the receptionists look askance at him and he booked a room on the sixth floor sea facing because of course Margaret Thatcher and the other VIPs would also be in sea facing rooms and there, he was in there for three days, and he assembled the bomb. I think the bomb was actually delivered to him. There were kind of IRA comrades who came and went uh, during his three days there. He mostly stayed inside the room. I mean, he, he very seldom came out. 
And once the, the bomb parts were delivered to him, he assembled it and he hid it beneath the, like in the, the panel, there's a kind of a hollow beneath the bath in the bathroom. And that was where he, he hid it. And after three days, you know, he cleaned up after himself to make sure everything didn't, you know, there was, didn't, there's nothing suspicious about the bath. And he, he you know, he paid his bill, checked out, walked away, disappeared and left inside the hollow of this bath, of the bathroom and in room 629 was a 30 pound bomb with a timer that was pulsing down to a countdown. And they had planned it that it would detonate just before 3 a.m. on the 12th of October. So that was going to be three weeks later because that was going to be the last night of the Tory party conference when they're pretty sure that Thatcher would be in her room at three o'clock in the morning. And, and that's what happened. So the, you know, the bomb ticked down or pulsed electronically down minute by minute uh, to that time to when Thatcher was indeed in her suite. She was in the Napoleon suite directly below five stories. And, but in a kind of, in a, you can envisage like a, a lift shaft going from the, the room that Patrick McGee had been in and to where Margaret Thatcher's suite was, the Napoleon suite, that was kind of five stories down, but directly down. So he was very well situated. And a murderous genius of, of the attack was that the bomb itself wasn't really the instrument of destruction. It was the IRA, and, and I mean, the book goes into a lot of detail about how they did this. But the idea was to turn the hotel itself into the weapon because the bomb at 30 pounds can only do so much damage. But what they what happened was once the bomb exploded upwards, and so it kind of obliterated the immediate rooms around it on the sixth floor, but it continued, the force of the bomb continued upwards through ceilings up onto the eighth floor and through the roof, and then exploded out into the night sky. And there it toppled a huge chimney stack, five tons of, Victorian masonry and it toppled and this you know five tons started plunging through you know the hole in the roof and started crashing down through the heart of the hotel and as it went it was gathering up you know the other masonry woods timber ceilings furniture human beings into this vortex which is plunging down 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 and that was the the weapon and that if they're going to kill Thatcher it was through this avalanche I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. After the bomb went off, the explosion ripped through several floors of the hotel before toppling the chimney above, which then started to crash through the floors below. Rory picks up the story. Those who heard the, the explosion said they would never forget it. I mean, including Norman Tebbett, um, who was lying in bed with his wife. He was a cabinet minister and Thatcher's right hand man. And, you know, he woke up and he saw the chandelier swaying and he shouted, it's a bomb. You know, he kind of knew straight away. But the vortex plunges down. Now, in the Napoleon suite, two things have happened. Two minutes earlier, Margaret Thatcher had been in her bathroom. She was still up. And she, you know, the workaholic that she was, she was, was up polishing her speech. She's going to be giving her, her keynote speech later that day. And so she'd been working on that. And But then she just left the bathroom and had come back into the, the, the living room part of the, the suite to finish up some dregs of government business when the bomb detonated. And the way, so the, the avalanche kind of thundered down and, but it swerved 
I mean, it happened in a sense because McGee's room had been directly above Thatcher's, but the avalanche, for reasons of physics, geometry, fate, it actually swerved somewhat. And so instead of then going directly down to, in towards where uh, into Thatcher's suite, it took a slight swerve and, st and started obliterating the rooms that were kind of in, um, in a line adjacent to it. And that's what happened. It, you know, the avalanche went down and caught up all these people in, the, in these rooms adjacent to, to where Thatcher's was. So when it reached the, the first floor where Thatcher's Napoleon suite was, it did very seriously damage the bathroom that Thatcher had been in just two minutes earlier. I mean, it, it, the tiles, masonry, glass shattered. And had she still been in there, she would have been very seriously hurt. She would have been cut to ribbons. But as it was, she was in the in, in an armchair uh, and there that was left undamaged. I mean, she heard the explosion, but she was left unscathed. Um, and so those two things, in a sense, saved her. The fact that she left the bathroom two minutes before detonation and that this homicidal avalanche swerved away, away from the direct path, because otherwise it would have crashed through the ceiling of her suite and it, could, it, it would have entombed her right there in her armchair. I mean, she could have died right there and then, but she didn't. And she survived. While Margaret Thatcher survived, this nevertheless led to an enormous manhunt. While the Provisional IRA claimed responsibility, the British police were determined to catch the individuals responsible. Initially, they had very little to go on. Rory starts to explain the investigation by explaining the context. This was the 1980s, a time before computers had transformed policing. I mean, for me, in, the, in terms of the research, it was one of the most rewarding parts. And it's a real step back in time because 1984, you know, as a pre, is still the kind of the analogue era. And it was a massive investigation. I mean, this was one of the biggest manhunts in British history because, like, Margaret Thatcher narrowly survived. This was an attempt to wipe out the entire British government. Nothing had been tried since Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot of 1605. I mean, it was like, you know, centuries earlier. And British kids, you know, to this day sing rhymes about Guy Fawkes. And that bomb didn't even go off. And so, you know, this is the, the scale of, of, what, of what had happened. And so... The police, all branch of the police, Scotland Yard, the Sussex police, the intelligence agencies are all, you know, doing, you know, suddenly desperate to try to find, well, who did it, you know, to try to catch, catch them. And, but it's hardly any clues left. I mean, there was, there appeared to be nothing there. I mean, they didn't know, you know, Mickey had left three weeks earlier, but they, they got lucky in one sense, because they were able to extract from the rubble in the basement the hotel registration cards. And there, they first they figured out the likely seat of the explosion. They kind of thought it's probably either room 629 or one of the adjacent rooms. So they thought, well, who, you know, who were the guests there before? If this was a time bomb, you know, and so they started working back through the registration cards. And there they saw a, a Roy Walsh had checked in three weeks earlier. Now they went to literally more than a thousand people who had been in that hotel, you know, guests in the in the weeks prior to uh, to the explosion. So there's a process of elimination. But quite early on, you know, this Roy Walsh became a person of interest. And so they, the British police would try to find who he was, but they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't get him because they didn't know who he was. They knew it was a pseudonym. Although there's a fascinating subplot to the, the, you know, the, the Patrick McGee's choice and use of the name Roy Walsh. Maybe I don't use up all the time on the on the podcast, but there's a fascinating thing about this because it turns out there was a real Roy Walsh, a real IRA bomber called Roy Walsh, who in 1984 was serving time in, in English jail for a previous attempt to IRA bombs in London from 1973. So in a sense, his use of Roy Walsh, it appears, was a type of homage to his predecessor. And so there's in terms of the psychology of the IRA, and it, it's, it, it's fascinating. The, the police, they were able to identify after several months, like, because again, this is largely a pre-computer era. It's not like you can put things into a, a computer system and, and, you know, within seconds or minutes, you get a result. They were doing this tortuous fingerprinting of registration cards and looking through the rubble of the hotel. Anyway, they eventually found some fingerprints or a palm print on this Roy Walsh registration card. And about three months later, they made a match with an IRA suspect on file who was Patrick McGee. So they thought, ah, 
Now we know who, who at least who checked into the hotel and who therefore likely planted the bomb. But they discovered that McGee was in Dublin. He was living in Ballymun relatively openly, well known to the Gardaí here as an IRA suspect. And at that time, there was no, the Irish courts tended to not extradite Irish suspects to, to England because their offences were deemed political. And so the, the British authorities had a real dilemma. Well, what do we do? I mean, we, this is our guy, McGee, as far as we know, and he's there in, in Ballymun, but we can't, you know, we to try and get the, the Irish police to arrest him, but then he's, he's just going to walk free from court or, or what? So they decided instead to sit tight, ask the, the Gardaí to, to, to keep a discreet surveillance on Mickey. But the British gambled that he would come back to the Britain um, again for fresh IRA operations. Because his nickname had to the British security forces was the Chancer. They considered him a guy who would push his luck. Now, I think, in fact, that, you know, in some ways, the, the nickname was ill-chosen because McGee was very meticulous and careful. And which is why he was still alive in 1984 after, despite a decade of, of doing IRA bombings. But they decided to sit tight and hope that he would come back to Britain. This somewhat risky strategy worked. Patrick McGee, having escaped back to Ireland, was unaware the police had identified him. And he, as they hoped, did return to Britain. But along the way, the police did lose track of him. After a few months, McGee, apparently still un- not knowing that he was in, in the frame for the Brighton bombing, but he did return to Britain to launch a new IRA campaign. But the, the Gardaí and the British lost him. He just disappeared off the radar. I mean, he, he crossed the water to plan this new campaign. All they knew was that he was no longer in Ballymun. He no longer seemed to be in Dublin. And they didn't know where he was. I mean, he could have gone to Belgium or the United States or, you know, with a fake passport. They, they'd lost him. And so, I mean, this was a very... Well, embarrassing, frustrating um, for for the British authorities. And, you know, months passed, no sign of McGee. And now what was actually happening, what he was doing was he had found a base in Glasgow with a new IRA unit. And they were planning a what was what would become known as the seaside bombing blitz, whereby they're going to plant 16 one six bombs at different locations in fancy British English hotels and also in seaside resorts to, and they'd all detonate over the course of several weeks in the summer of 1985. And the idea being, it was a, a, a strategy that they borrowed from the Basque, from the ETA in the, in the Basque country of Northern Spain. The idea was to try to destroy the British tourism industry because that this would cause panic, you know, hotels blowing up again and beaches being cleared and and so on. So the idea was like largely an economic, but also psychological attack on uh, on Britain. And so they were quite advanced. McGee had in fact planted a new bomb in a hotel opposite Buckingham Palace, which was planted. And he was, and this was in June 1985. And he was then planning to return to base in Glasgow to regroup with his comrades there, where the final stage is to plant the, the rest of the bombs. It was on this journey from London to Glasgow that Patrick McGee would end up back on the police radar, somewhat by accident. As he travelled back north, he met another IRA volunteer, Peter Sherry, who had recently arrived in England. Sherry, however, was being trailed by the police. Now, on his way back to Glasgow, he had a, a stopover in, in Carlisle in northern England, where he's going to pick up a new member of the unit that had been sent over from Northern Ireland. And his name is Peter Sherry. And the plan was pick up Peter Sherry, who's an experienced IRA guy, and then McGee would take him on to the safe house in Glasgow. Unknown to, to Sherry and McGee, Sherry was under surveillance. And this part of the research on the book I find especially fascinating because you know, I had to speak to ex-RUC surveillance officers and that whole world of what they did in terms of spying on the IRA and like hiding in boots of cars with a peephole. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating things. But what mattered here was that the REC knew that Peter Sherry was an East Tyrone veteran kind of gunman. And his nickname was the Armalite Kid. And he was on the move. 
They they knew he's he's going to cross over. He was going to take um, a coal boat across the Irish Sea. And to do what? They didn't know. They just knew it was quite unusual that he's going to be leaving his kind of East Tyrone hinterland to do, they assumed, something. And so they were watching. They were keeping tracks on Sherry when he arrived in a, a port in Scotland. And then he took trains and he ended up in Carlisle, where there the English and Scottish police have been kind of teaming up along with RUC men from Northern Ireland were have been keeping tabs on Sherry. And there he is on a railway platform and just waiting. And then this smaller man um, with a moustache and, and kind of slight stubble greets him. And the police from afar are kind of discreetly watching this. And some of them, they're looking, looking at this new, this guy is just now speaking to Sherry. And, and, the, and of course, they've been studying the files of IRA suspects and so on. And somebody thinks, is that McGee? Is that Patrick McGee? Now, you know, and they, they're thinking because McGee was a well-known bomber. They didn't, they themselves, the police didn't know that McGee was actually wanted for the Brighton bombing. That has still been kept relatively secret by the intelligence services. But they knew McGee was an IRA, an IRA man. And so the the narrative here gets very dramatic because the you know the, the police, the watchers decide to took a very bold move they decided to not swoop in there and then and arrest sherry and mcgee they decided to in their parlance to let them run and to see where were they where were they going to go to, to where what would they lead the police to because at this point the police had no clue what was up i mean what are sherry mcgee doing and i mean were they armed did they have bombs with them or nothing because what if they arrested them and they didn't have guns or weapons i mean then is there any do, would they have a, a criminal case or not so they took the risk of, of, of these two operators slipping away or losing them, and they followed them. And it turned out that McGee and Sherry took a train from Carlisle to Glasgow, and then they took a bus, and it was kind of a, kind of a drizzly but um, a showery June afternoon. Uh, they took a bus down to South Glasgow, got off, and then ambled through a park. And they were doing, McGee and Sherry, what is known as dry cleaning exercises, which is kind of counter surveillance measures, which is kind of a routine thing you do if you're an IRA person on, on active service, as they would put it, where you're, you're just checking in case you are being followed. So you kind of double, you, you retrace your steps and you, um, but they didn't twig that in fact they were being followed. And I guess in this case, it's a, a tribute to the, the British surveillance operators that they were discreet enough that they weren't rumbled by by this IRA pair. And eventually then they continued on to a, a tenement building and they, they walked in and disappeared through the doorway. And the British watchers are like, okay, what are they doing in there? We don't know. You know, who are they meeting? Are there, are there more IRA people in there? We don't know. The special branch in Glasgow decided to raid the house, but they faced a very tricky situation. All they knew was that Sherry and McGee and potentially others were in one of the houses in the tenement but didn't know which one and given it was a weekend they had to pull together a team to carry out the raid from those on duty or available. Lots of their colleagues were away. They improvised like a a posse of about two dozen detectives and uh, not all of them were armed it was a bit of a scramble to try to get handguns at, at, that, at this point because it was a Saturday evening. A lot of the police were, were off duty. And anyway, this posse arrives outside this tenement building, which had eight flats. They didn't know in which flat the Sherry and McGee had gone. So the idea was that they would divide up two or three men per door and all, they would all simultaneously on, the, on a shouted signal that they'd all knock on the doors of all these eight apartments and then t- try to identify which one was the, you know, that had the IRA suspects and then charge in and try and arrest everybody. I mean, it was a very basic plan. They didn't have time. The police didn't have time to, to like have a, get a map of the place. They didn't have time to s- distribute photographs of McGee or Sherry to, to all of these kind of improvised posse. And so it was very, you know, lots could have gone wrong, but luck was on their side. Because McGee was sitting down to dinner with Sherry, not suspecting anything, with the rest of the IRA team, which included, among others, uh, Martina Anderson, 
a future MEP and Stormont minister. And they, the, the IRA unit, this was their safe house, but they were actually expecting a visit from the landlord to collect the rent. And they had some cash in an envelope on the mantelpiece waiting for, in anticipation of that. And so sure enough, when they hear that on the door, that, you know, they up, oh, McGee pops up from the dinner table and thinks, oh, that must be the landlord, you know, and he goes to the, to the door, opens it. And right there, there's some police men looking at him in plain clothes, but he straight away, he knew, you know, he could guess that these were cops. He tried to bluff it out and he put on his best English accent, like, and he said something like, um, can I help you? I'm not going to try and do his English accent. And they didn't answer him. They recognized him and they they just yanked him into the hallway. Uh, a shout went up to all of the other police detectives who were in, scattered around the tenement building. It's down, grand floor, grand floor. That's, and so the, all the this kind of thundering feet down through the hallway and suddenly you have you know, almost like 20 burly detectives all charging through this hallway into the flat where the whole IRA team was caught. And they were just completely caught, you know, um, <laughs> they were so shocked that they didn't have time to reach for the handguns. That's how complete the surprise was. And so the, the, the British police scored a huge coup. They, they caught the Brighton bomber and the whole IRA cell without a shot fired in Glasgow. And I mean, this, in a sense, I mean, you know, the, the final twist to the, to the Brighton bombing story. When the case went to trial, Patrick McGee was convicted and sentenced to eight life prison sentences and a minimum of 35 years. While he was released in 1999 under the terms of the Belfast Agreement, in his book, Rory argues that Britain was never quite the same after the Brighton bombing. I asked him about this to conclude the episode. It changed Britain, even though the bomb did not kill Thatcher, it, it did change Britain. I mean, one of the most kind of prosaic way was that politics never could never quite be the same again because that pre, pre-Brighton era where, you know, people could m- mix much more easily with cabinet ministers and even prime ministers in public ended right there and then because the, the security protocols that we're now accustomed to in terms of sterile so-called islands of security of multiple checks of property sealing off a hotel for you know days before a, a party conference a much more rigorous checks all of that really started coming into britain in the aftermath of uh, of the brighton attack thatcher herself became a party because of this she became more isolated from the british public and from british sentiment because she could no longer quite as freely you know, move in public as she had before, because simply because security considerations no longer permit that. I mean, she comes so close to being killed that they couldn't allow it to happen again. And so in a sense, this, and this happens when you're in power after a few years anyway, you do become gradually more and more kind of isolated. And this kind of compounded that, that process. And so, you know, Thatcher gradually lost touch, I think, with the British public sentiment and also her own party. And we saw this then certainly by her third term. I mean, she became, you know, really quite, she lost touch with her own her own backbenchers even. And so I think the Brighton bombing compounded that. And in a sense, it did not kill Thatcher, but it helped, one could say, kill her career. Because, you know, by 1990, you know, she was no longer had the, the you know, the, the faith of her, her, of her party and they, they ousted her. It also changed Britain in that, in 1984, the person deemed most likely to be Thatcher's heir was Norman Tebbit. He was the employment minister, and he was, in a sense, one of the motors of Thatcherism, a very kind of radical minister, but also extremely popular with Tory party grassroots. I mean, he had been the conference darling. I mean, he was a good good speaker. And he had been the one who's been tipped to, you know, to replace Thatcher when, when she would eventually step down. But the bomb left him grievously injured. and tragically left his wife a paraplegic and he could never really get over that i mean he went back to office he resumed his career for a while but his own injuries were far more serious than he let on and his wife i mean there was a sense of of guilt and i spoke to him i mean norman tebbit and he's written about this himself there was a sense that you know the bomb she his wife paid the price in a sense for his own for his political ambitions 
and of course, it was the IRA's responsibility of what happened, but you know, the sense that his ambitions had led to his wife being spending the rest of her life in a wheelchair. And so he decided he he resigned from frontline politics in 1987. And there and then ended this kind of counterfactual vision of Britain with Norman Tebbett as prime minister. Um, and so that is one of the, um, the many what ifs in this story. That's, that's, that's one of the big ones. I want to take this opportunity to thank Rory for his time. You can find links to his book in the show notes below. There's a lot of fascinating detail in there that we didn't get to cover. Next week, I'll be back with something very different. It's about tracking down the life of a survivor of the Great Hunger, which proved a lot trickier than you might expect, but it's a fascinating podcast. Finally, don't forget to pre-order your copy of A Lethal Legacy and use that code FD10 at Eason's.com to get a 10% discount today. Until next week, Sloan. We're not going to be able to plant a huge, massive, you know, 500 pound or 1000 pound bomb in the hotel uh, without being discovered. So they they kind of ration themselves to think, OK, we're going to plant a smallish bomb, probably around 30 pounds in, in weight. And we're going to try and place it in a part of the hotel, which A, where it will not be discovered, at least reduce the chances of discovery and B, where it will do maximum damage and give us a chance of killing Thatcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 